By the way, if <clears throat> there are any people who have a hard time hearing, like in the back, there are headphones in the office, which would, would which ought to help a great deal. It's a little late for this talk, but come up closer. One of my uh, interests, uh, we should call it a hobby, is uh, herbal, herbal medicine, sometimes called phytomedicine, plant, the healing uh, powers of plants. And uh, growing up in Brooklyn, I, it's not that I really know much about going amidst plants, just more from the National Geographic and you know Discovery Channel and things like that. Uh, and reading about it and using them. But I have a, a very good and old friend who's an herbalist uh, many, many years. And um, in herbalism, modern herbalism, there's a kind of split. People who are whole plant, the approach of whole plant, W-H-O-L-E, uh, that means just what it sounds like. It's the entire plant. Um, <clears throat> what that's getting at is that it's admitting we don't fully know, science doesn't fully know all the different components of uh, really any work of nature that may be beneficial. Uh, the other school is you find out what the main factor is. Let's say it's ginkgo to help with memory. You find a, you isolate that or whatever plant. You find out this is the main uh, aspect of the plant that is effective for a particular purpose. And then you intensify it. That's, I think, modeled after the drug industry. That's what's done with plants. And uh, in one chat we had some years ago, we saw that we were, had a very similar interest. He was interested in whole plants. I was interested in whole people, W-H-O-L-E. Uh, so we gave a workshop together in, in Cambridge. Uh, very few people came, but we had a good time. <laughs> um, I'd like to clarify some of what was uh, uh, suggested uh, a few evenings ago about a, a certain attitude that might be helpful for us as lay practitioners, an attitude that start, it's right here on retreat. Um, just as a feature of a plant can be isolated, selected, and then intensified, and then you put all your hopes on that, um, compared to realizing you don't know everything, that nature is much more complex than even the best of science right now, anyway, maybe always. Um, it's similar here. That is, if you fixate and you think that you're just going to sit and do more retreats. The more retreats, the more hours you clock in on the, uh, on the cushion, that the wiser you're going to get. Maybe, but maybe not. Because especially for lay people, most of our life uh, is not going to be lived here. We don't live in a monastery. We don't live in the forest or in a cave or in the mountains. Uh, in fact, our... Uh, our forest is relationship, school, work, could call it a jungle. 
Um, and so if we put all our hopes on one aspect of practice, fixate on it, as beautiful as it is, coming to a retreat is invaluable. can't tell you how much it's helped me. But if you dip it in bronze and then put it on the mantelpiece and uh, then take photographs of it and put it in your wallet like graduation pictures, you know, where you're smiling and, and that's supposed to stand for you, uh, it's one snapshot touched up a little bit, and you carried around, or your parents carried around, probably. Um, so, while we, what I was trying to say is, uh, without undermining uh, retreat life, which is precious, and that's why we're here, but um, undermining a kind of split that's, that I saw develop years ago, and I saw that we paid a price for it. That is we would put all our hopes on doing as many retreats as we could, sitting as many hours as we could when we get home. By all means, do as many retreats as you can. By all means, sit when you get home. But probably, maybe even definitely, we're lay people. We're going to be spending most of our life not on a cushion. It's going to be with people. It's going to be at work, family, school. You know what your life is. Same with me. So we need a practice that right from the start has an attitude that values daily life, that values it. Um, having spent a lot of time in monasteries, in, mainly in uh, eight years in Zen monasteries, Korean and Japanese, not all of my, here and in, and in Asia, and also in the Thai forest tradition, uh, and always being a lay person, <clears throat> there's a certain attitude, certain things you, you pick up. For example, a lot of the humor in some of the monasteries, is making fun of lay life. For example, one of my teachers uh, would say, you know, uh, lay people, they see all the problems of marriage, uh, all the suffering that's in marriage and raising children, and they jump up and volunteer for the job anyway. Okay, no one's laughing. <laughs> I thought it was funny, actually. Okay, now that's functional if you're 20 years old, 24-year-old male with a lot of sexual energy and you're being celibate. You're not, in other words, what the message is is you ain't missing a thing out there. Those folks out there, they're just suffering their heads off. Okay, so you're lucky you're here in the monastery. Relationship, none of it ever works. They're torturing each other. Families are dysfunctional. Uh, it's just killing, pillage, plunder, rape. You know, just uh, aren't we lucky? We don't have to do it because we're here. Now, that's a useful way of looking at life if you've committed yourself to being celibate, etc., one meal a day and so forth. Uh, now, if we pick up some of that, some of it comes inadvertently, not intentionally, then we judge ourselves through monastic eyes, then we're always going to feel incomplete and like we're not really doing it. If we really wanted to do it, we'd become monks or nuns. Maybe that might be true. But the fact is, we are lay people. We are trying to do it. I'm starting with the facts. I, I, I don't have a big ideology that uh, it's superior to be a lay person and that the monastic uh, tradition, it's over with, and we're, we're all going to ride off into the sunset as enlightened lay people. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying the fact is, this is how we live our life. We have children. We're in relationships. We go in and out of relationships. We have jobs, which we hate, love, you know. Money is an issue and so forth. We have to learn how to, how to master that. Uh, and so if we have an attitude, and if you recall, uh, somehow 
people at the end of a retreat, it's an integration talk, and then we thought, well, now we're going back to the real world. Well, in other words, what is this world that we're in here right now? Is this some kind of make-believe world? Is this all a piece of cake if you're really sitting and walking? I don't think so. I think there are different challenges here than there are at home. When you get home, there are different challenges there that there aren't here. And so while here, 100% retreat mind. When you leave here, exhale it, let it go. 100% driving the car back to wherever you're going mind, etc., and so forth. So uh, for me, there's just life. Uh, and this is one form of life. Uh, it's a, a form of life that's been tested for thousands of years and proven to be very useful. Let's keep it. And let's use it and let's come here or other places like this as much as possible. Have a sitting practice at home. I have no problem with that at all. I know the value of it personally. But if we have an attitude that views the rest of the life as sort of like coping, putting up with, um, as if relationship is hopeless but we'll do the best we can, uh, or just limit it to a few ethical principles, you know, sort of some of the uh, assistance that I've heard monks give lay people is make sure the family gets fed, has a roof over its head, medical expenses, send the children to school, and so forth. That's good advice. But there's much more to it. Okay. So that it seems as if relationship is one of the most difficult parts of living. And that's what, you know, like, get me to the monastery, that relationship stuff. We've all been, many of us, maybe all of us, for all I know, have been wounded there, either in childhood and or later on. And so it's wonderful to take a break from that here. I'm not taking issue with that. But we go back. So we need an approach that has respect for what our life actually is. Not, otherwise, what it is, we've become neither here nor there. We're not really fully living a lay life with vigor and doing the best we can. And we're not monks and nuns. Now, maybe something different is going on now. I don't really know. There seem to be a lot of lay people who are coming to retreats, practicing, studying, really seem to care about it. Maybe it's the modern world and, and there's no some new form. I have no idea. Maybe in another 20 years it will revert back and the people who are really serious will just become monks and nuns. So we tried that. IMSC, IMC, it's hopeless. Let's just become a monk or a nun. You know, I don't know. But I do know this. Right now, this is what our life is. And so we need a, an approach, an attitude which appreciates whatever we're doing as life. And when we're here, fully be here. And when we leave, fully go home. If relationship is difficult, of course it is. Then there's a, a, a Zen saying, a bad situation is a good situation. Remember I mentioned, uh, for me, the practices, seeing the world, uh, the world is here to set us free. The world is not just... a the word world means world as expressed in all the concrete situations that make up our particular world. And so if we have an attitude that whatever it is, whenever difficulties come up, challenges, instead of seeing that as how do I cope with this, put up with it, escape it, I can't wait till my next retreat, but I'll do my best to get through this, uh, how about a different attitude where is it possible, I'll put it as a question, is it possible to use the forms that are the most problematic relationship, we humans with each other, 
we, don't, we have a hard time living with one another, whether it's individuals, communities, villages, countries. Look at war. It seems to never go away. Okay, so uh, it seems we have no choice. I, I personally know this. For me, I have no choice to try to learn how to not just put up with it, but to squeeze some wisdom from it to see how this can actually be a very positive thing, a liberating aspect of our life. And is it difficult? I have found it is difficult. Can you learn it? Yes. And is it a lifetime endeavor? Absolutely. Of course it is. Okay, I'm going to leave that more to the end uh, of relationship. When we get, I'm not sure we'll, ha we'll have time this evening. If so, I'll start it. But uh, when you start with relationship, often people, then their minds go, you go you're, you're already home. And we're not home. We're still here. Then again, there's no protection because when you were home, you were thinking about being here. <laughs> then when you're here, you're thinking about getting home, and so it goes. Somehow, wherever we are isn't the right place. It's always someplace better. Okay. So the attitude is one of uh, what, is my, what is correct action in this situation? In this situation, silence in this situation, a lot of contemplative activity, sitting and walking, you know, just what our round of life is here. We still also wash and dress and eat and take care of bodily needs and so forth. We have a job, yogi job. The three of us have yogi jobs too. I'm doing my yogi job right now. Yeah, I mean, sure. I'm doing the best I can. Okay. Now, sometimes the attitude is, I didn't come here. I came here to meditate, not to clean pots or vacuum. You missed the point. That is, that with this attitude, there's daily life here, some of it quite similar to what goes on at home, even identical. But we have an opportunity to start re-educating ourselves, to learn a new way to relate to the same activities, eating, washing, cleaning, and so forth, so that here it's simpler and it's more protected, so that some of that can be taken home and brought into clearly, for most of us, more challenging situations. Um, okay, so we left off, I think, uh, skillful and unskillful. It's trying to say that wouldn't it be nice if the art of living, skill in living, if that were something that we really loved, the way Hokusai loved to draw, or maybe the way you love music or dance or cooking or whatever you love to do, photography, it doesn't really matter. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be nice if we had that kind of interest and energy in self-understanding, in learning how to live, if that became not drudgery, not cod liver oil so we have strong bones when we grow up, but actually the process of living and the act of living becomes something that is really, I don't know, for me it's joyful, even what I'm looking at may not be. It's, uh, I get my energy from even a small discovery. You just learn a little bit about yourself by yourself, not from a book. When that happens to me, uh, I get energy from it, and it's, I find it inspiring. You see, or a teaching that you've gotten, and suddenly you really see what those words meant. Um, so what, what was suggested is that uh, there is in the Buddhist teaching uh, real guidelines as a skill in living. In fact, 
uh, if you recall, it's one of maybe the dominant theme in the suttas, is the Buddha is constantly talking about what is skillful and what is unskillful. So what I'd like to do is uh, read a little bit from uh, a couple of teachings of the Buddha. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, so that you hear the flavor of it from uh, these classical teachings. Um, I think I'll tell us, talk us through a lot of it, so I, I'm not going to read all of this. The Kalamas are a people who were privileged in India, ancient India, or as they had good living conditions, education, uh, adequate food, and so forth. And it's sometimes when I, in this, it seems like it's a lot like Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live. Uh, and they were going crazy because every teaching is coming through. And here's what they say. And they sat there, the Kalamas of Kasaputta said to the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, Lord, there are some yogis and contemplatives who come to Kasaputta. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as far as the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. And then other yogis and contemplatives come to Kasaputta. They expound and glorify their own doctrines. But as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. They leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt. Which of these venerable contemplators are speaking the truth and which ones are not? Uh, it's a it's sort of abundance of riches. There's just too many. Cambridge is drowning in Dharma teachers. You, you, you like Tibetan Buddhism? Which flavor? Oh, Nyingma? Which kind of Nyingma? Vipassana, so far, it's, we have pretty much a monopoly. It's going to change. Because <laughs> no one, it's too boring. You know, you know you're going to sit and walk, sit and walk until you're blue in the face. And we don't have enough hocus-pocus and carrying on. <laughs> in other words, there's not enough theater in it. It's a low-budget film, in other words. <laughs> and if you're a plain, dreary, dry, depressed person like myself, then you're drawn to Vipassana. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, some years ago, okay, let me give you more, a little more of the sutta. The, here's what the Buddha says. And if it weren't for this sutta, which is one of the things I was introduced very, very early on, I could not do this practice because I had such an attitude towards religions. I think I conveyed it a little bit the other day. Not, not the heart of religion, not the religious heart, to put it another way, but what organized, uh, politicized, systematized, institutionalized religions have done. I don't think they've been a, overall a benefit to the human race. There have been pockets of small numbers of people who have done some wonderful things and kept something precious alive. But overall, it's just a lot of suffering that has come from religions. That's all I'm saying. I'm not anti the, the truth. Okay, so here they are, they're confused, they don't know what to do, and the Buddha says, of course you're uncertain, Kalamas, of course you're in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So, in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, don't, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical, 
conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, important. These qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. Okay, and then he reverses it, so that it's exactly the same. And what he's saying is, don't give absolute, hand over absolute authority to something because it's ancient, or because your teacher, uh, who you love and respect, tells you it's true. The Buddha praised people who doubted his teaching. Praised them. It took a while for people to understand he really meant it. It's not a belief system. It's not that if you're a believer, you're all set, or if you have faith, you're all set. Those are provisional to kind of get some energy going. And the energy is to be used to check and test and see if this teaching really is beneficial for you. Hey, when it says criticized by the wise, the flip side is do those uh, actions which are, are beneficial, that are skillful. Uh, and, but it doesn't mean that these other aspects are irrelevant. It doesn't mean that ancient scriptures, some people interpret it as, uh, I would say, I know it's disrespectful, but it's, it's sort of the California, you know, sort of like, I just, uh, I do my own thing, follow my heart. Okay, this is a story we got from, uh, I got anyway, from Mahabuo, who both, Karato mentioned, we both studied with him. And he sort of, if you weren't a Thai forest master, he could be a Marine Corps general. You know, you wouldn't notice the difference. Uh, but he can, in one moment, he's a Marine Corps general. Another moment, he's a loving grandmother. Next moment, he could be a stand-up comic at a, at a nightclub. But he, he, so at any rate, after the one meal, after the meal is one meal a day, uh, someone from California asks him a question. There's a back and forth, even speak English. And the translator tries to uh, understand, uh, help uh, Mahabua understand what he, what he does. And it's sort of how do you decide how to act? And what this person is saying is, is I follow my heart. Okay. I had to say M-A because that's how you drop it off to, you know. Okay. You, I have to explain my shticks. All right. <laughs> not playing this town anymore. <laughs> Okay. Um, and Mahabua was perplexed. He kept, the translator kept explaining it to him, explaining. He said he, he couldn't get it. And finally he got it. And Mahabua, in other words, he was, this is how you make your decisions. I follow my heart. And Mahabua just practically doubled over laughing. Couldn't get over it. He says, you follow your heart? That cesspool full of urine, feces, <laughs> pus, you know, that has gotten you into this mess? that has gotten you have to travel thousands of miles, live, eating strange food for you, getting sick, living in the jungle. That heart, that's the one that you follow? Oh, oh, oh. you know, he just could Okay. So, but how do you know if something's skillful or if it's not skillful? You have to do the best you can. Now, if your heart is, you know, maybe not quite as bad as what Mahabu is saying, but, and that's why teachings are helpful. Now, remember, uh, so in other words, the teachings of the wise. In this case, the wise would stand for the Buddha's teaching and, of course, the, the generations. But there have been other extraordinary people who have followed the Buddha in all the different traditions throughout all the different uh, Asian countries 
uh, and uh, they really exist, and they've made an incredible contribution. But that, that's, for our purposes, mainly, let's say, it's the Buddha's teachings. Um, the reason it's helpful is that, if you remember, I was trying to mention the other day, is if you're trying to learn a skill, how do you learn a skill, any skill, carpentry, cooking? You put it in, you practice the skill, and then you see the result you get. Uh, the meal turns out, oh, there was too much paprika, too, not enough onions, too much of this. Next time you fix it a little bit, still no good. Then you do it a little bit this way, a little bit that way, until finally you get it right. Okay? Um, it's the same here. You have to, you live out your life, you do the best you can, uh, and you try to see, well, what is skillful and what is unskillful? Uh, and then you, 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 if, if you're following the, uh, this practice, you see that certain things don't work. They produce suffering in you. And then the question is, can you then live that? But what, it, what is being suggested here is not that you throw out the teachings. It's not so, in other words, one, one skewed v- view of this is forget about teachings, just follow your heart. You don't need teachings. They're ancient, they're not relevant, they're from another culture. That's not what's being said. What is being said is that finally, oh, so that the way you master a skill is one, you, you do it and then you watch the results, cause and effect, and then you keep refining it and it's in everything we do if you want to improve, refine your ability. The other is you seek out the company or the record of people who have mastered that skill. We'd be, let's say if the Buddha were alive today, we'd be foolish not to, t- not to spend some time trying to learn from that person. Or the best, you know, you got Corrado, me, and Matthew is the best you can do. You know, you just, <laughs> you know, this is it. But we also have books. Okay, so it's an interplay. Uh, what it is saying, though, is that you don't give final authority over to anyone or as they say in Zen, you don't put someone's head on top of your own. Because finally, you, let's say if you come to any, a teacher and say, oh, you're so wise, you know the Dharma inside and out, just tell me what to do. First of all, we don't fully know, you can't fully know who, who is who. You might think you know, oh, that teacher is much more enlightened than this one. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. So finally, it's gonna, the ball is in your court. Finally, it's our life. We have to take responsibility. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from all kinds of sources. And then finally, we don't give absolute control, final authority over to any of these sources mentioned, scriptures, teachers, etc. But we can uh, learn from them. And if our mind is something resembling Mahabhu's latrine, then we need, it's helpful if we have somebody who has a, clean, a clearer mind suggesting certain things to us. But that's not enough. It's not just to believe in them. This is knowledge. It's not ours yet. And the challenge is to convert knowledge into understanding. Knowledge is about things. It's useful. It's really valuable. But it isn't it. Uh, in, there are ancient images of the Buddha's finger pointing to the moon. Uh, and if you get fixated on the finger, you won't see the moon or monkeys seeing the moon reflected in a clear pool of water, grabbing for the, for the moon. It's, they never get it, because that's not the moon, that's just a reflection. Okay. 
uh, or if the you know sign Boston and you've never been to Boston, you don't get out and climb on top of the sign <laughs> because it's not Boston. It's just saying if you want to get to Boston that way. So the teacher, so how to convert? That's all that knowledge is of them. They're pointers. They're pointing us in the right direction. Then we have to test it with our life, and then. Is it beneficial? Does it help? Is it skillful? Am I better off for having done it, doing it? Are the people in my life better off? As Corrado was saying last night, if you protect, take care of yourself, you do take care of others because they, they have to live with you and with me. My wife knows better than anyone else whether I'm a jerk or not. You know, she doesn't see me as some big Dharma teacher. For her, it's just take out the garbage. And, you know, I see a lot of nodding. Okay. <laughs> well, well, we're all married to the same woman? <laughs> okay. Okay. okay, so um, it's a refreshing teaching, and I think that's why a lot of scientists and educated people are drawn to it, because it is inviting you to test this and to see in your own life if it's beneficial. Now, I have found it to be beneficial. Have you? Like, take a simple thing, like just anapanasati, the breathing. Have you found it that if you stay with it to some degree that it does bring some calm? Or have you only been hearing it on tapes and books and hearing people tell you that it is? Do you know it yet, or is it still secondhand knowledge? If it is, if you really don't know it, keep, the only way you can find out is by practice. I know it. It's not that I'm bragging. It's not that special. It's that I've done enough of it to say, oh, wow, who would have thought that a simple thing like trading in all my wonderful, grandiose, terrific ideas for just a simple in-and-out breath would be so beneficial? turns out it is. And it was very helpful when I discovered it years ago. I hope it is for you. So it's training in honesty, too. And, of course, it gets much more challenging than the breath because as we live... Uh, uh, we have reactions to what's going on. Life is really the great teacher because it gives us an opportunity to learn something. And whether we take it or not, of course, that's up to us. The Buddha keeps going. What do you think, Kalamas, when greed arises in a person? Well, let's call it the wanting mind, that mind that wants, wants, wants. It arises for welfare or for harm. Now, here is something that I think I have to pause a bit with. And this uh, greedy, excuse me, I haven't been a professor in a long time. It's very hard to, okay. What do you think, Kalamas? When greed arises in a person, does it arise for welfare or for harm? And the person answers, for harm, Lord. In other words, uh, and the Buddha goes on. And this greedy person, overcome by greed, his mind possessed by greed, kills living beings, takes what is not given, goes after another person's wife and husband, uh, tells lies, and induces others to do likewise, all of which is for long-term harm and suffering. Yes, Lord. 
Now, what do you think, Holmes, when an aversion arises in a person? He does this for greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, let's be careful here, because if you answer yes, do you really know it? Do you really know that, that when your mind is in a state of wanting, that it's harmful? If so, that's, that's a big discovery. And if you really know it, you're going to be suffering a lot less. It's one thing to know it up here and to agree with the Buddha, yes, Lord. It's another thing to convert that, something that seems sensible, that is the mind that is wanting, 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 can't be a clear mind because that unfulfilled wish is coloring everything that's happening. Okay, so when, uh, 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 when Ajahn Chah, a very fine Thai forest master, came to IMS many years ago, he saw that everyone was, uh, the, the key word then, as to some degree now, is letting go. Everyone was letting go of everything. Because even before he arrived, we had heard of the whole practice, let go, let go. So wherever you went, everyone was letting go of everything. But we were still the same jerks. Just that we had a new vocabulary where we're letting everything go. Okay, and he picked up on it. And he said, look, don't be in a hurry to, you know, the teaching um, craving and attachment leads to suffering, greed, wanting, thirst, tanha. Uh, He said, do you really know that? And so he said, don't be in a hurry to let go. Find out if this is really true. And so he encouraged us to, when we were suffering, to look and see, is there really, really craving and wanting and holding on in that moment? Is that really happening? And when, if you see it a few times, then that teaching has is, is become your own. Then it's converted from knowledge to understanding. It's a little deeper. And as you start seeing it with clearer eyes, that becomes deeper and deeper. And uh, that's, what, that's, the, that's the central part of learning. Look, there's so many things that we can learn. But central to the Buddha's use of, of learning, we'll lear- the art of learning how to live in... Uh, in, is very, very much concerned with skillful living, which is defined here as whether you're hurting yourself and others or harming yourself or uh, be, uh, being helpful to yourself and others. And the words may sound convincing, and he goes through it again with aversion, aggression, and so forth, and with delusion. If the mind is confused, is the, are the actions going to be great, terrific? Probably not. If the mind is full of anger, seething, are the actions going to be uh, likely to be wise, kind, intelligent? Probably not. I'd much rather have a mind that's clear. Do you see what, what, the, what the Buddha's getting at? Um, okay, now that, uh, I'm going to skip much, much of this. Because what he's suggesting is, uh, in, you see it right here, advice from the wise is the Buddha. The Buddha's suggesting this. And now, then, it's our job to see if indeed this is really true. Does, the, does breath awareness really bring some calm into your life? If you take that mind that's a little bit more clear and you examine what's happening to you and you see greed and then you also see the suffering, you really see it, not just um, conceptualize it, turn it into an idea, which can be very satisfying if you have an intellectual bent. It's not, it's not the idea of it. It's actually, it's raw. It's naked. You really, it's intimate. You feel it. And it's a different kind of learning. Much different. It's, and little by little, it becomes really in our bones. And with that, so you really, uh, wisdom is not just wise words. It has to be living wisdom. So that, and it isn't just on a cushion. 
This is also learned in action, as you, you'll see in a moment. Um, okay, I'm going to leave this then, and uh, I'm going to reinforce it with another teaching. This is the Buddha and his son, Rahula. The Buddha's son became a monk. It's a very short teaching. It really uh, is about this, and I, I can't tell you how helpful it has been for me, personally. The Buddha, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? And Rahula answers, for reflection, sir. The Buddha, in the same way, Rahula, bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts are to be done and repeated, are to be done with repeated reflection. That is, um, see the significance of your thoughts. See the significance of what you say. See the significance of your actions. In other words, uh, in mastering a skill, you watch what the result is. Okay, so we have someone who's mastered the skill of living, at least more than us, the Buddha, and he's telling us greed and hatred produce suffering. We test it, okay? Um, if we test it and find that it, it's indeed true, then it's starting to become our own. Um, the reflection, and then I'm, I'm going to spare you the whole thing. He talks about, uh, well, I better read some of it. Whenever you want to perform a bodily act, and I would include mental act or verbal act, you should reflect on it. This act that I want to perform, would, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful act with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, to both, it would be an unskillful act with painful consequences and painful results. And that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful, and then he goes on the positive side, that what the kind of thoughts you have, how you speak, and the actions, they're beneficial by all means. Then act on them. Now, he does this in the three tenses. Before you act, I mean, it's nice and tidy in a sutra. Life doesn't allow us that kind of neatness often. It's messier. Before you act, reflect. Is this likely to be skillful, beneficial? If it is, do it. But then if in the process of doing it, uh, you see, you know, I thought this was going to be skillful, beneficial, but I see now that I was wrong. And stop. I had one teacher who said, just apologize, just stop. And just say, I thought this was going to be useful, but I see I was off. So then when you actually act, appraise it. And then even when the action's over, if you look back and realize, you know, I was really quite confident that when I did it, it seemed like it was really beneficial. But now that I look at it, I see that I was fooled by it or that it was very, very short-term, but overall it's been very, very damaging. If that's the case, it's not to lay a guilt trip on yourself, but if you feel some remorse about that, that's fine. But use that in the service of learning so you learn some lesson and don't repeat it. Okay, so you can see where this is going. You can see that this is a guideline to living. And it isn't something that you have some mechanical instrument Let's see, is this beneficial, harmful, skillful, unskillful? The instrument is us. And to begin with, it's very un, it's, we're crude. The clarity, we have to do the best we can. 
we have teachings, we have teachers, we have situations like all this. Uh, little by little, we're refining our ability to see clearly, and I would say that's crucial. Because we really think, if you're an adult, you think you're already seeing clearly. We're doing the best we can. When we wake up, oh, I, I was asleep, now I'm really awake. That's relative to a standard where the Buddha is the awakened one. So to some degree, we have, in the language of the ancients, still a lot of dust on our eyes. But we're doing the best we can, and we think we're really seeing things accurately. Uh, When we see a mountain, for example, when we see a mountain, it seems so solid and real, and we know we didn't put it there. It's not fabricated by our mind or anything. It's right there. And when we have views and opinions sometimes, it feels exactly as true. This is so true. And some of our uh, opinions, notions, feel as if they're that solid and true. They aren't. And then we act. And then something happens. Do we learn from that something? Very often what happens is we see that what we did is unskillful. And yet we don't correct it. We see that something is skillful. And yet we don't strengthen that. We betray ourselves. Have you, have you ever seen that in yourself? We know exactly what not to do, but we do it anyway. We know exactly what to do. We don't do it. Uh, so that's an area for investigation. Why is it that I see this is harmful to myself, and yet I keep doing it over and over and over? Now, some of that is that uh, we haven't learned that lesson deeply enough. And it's complex, granted. As the mind gets more steady, as the seeing becomes more accurate, vipassana, insight, clear seeing, as that becomes uh, refined, matures, become, as the mirror gets dusted off and, more cl- and reflects back, uh, it becomes easier to see what's harmful. In fact, what is said in the scriptures is that when the mind is really clear, wisdom and clear seeing are the same thing. The insight we're talking about is not thinking insight. There are useful insights that our thinking, reflective thought, can be very helpful, but it doesn't have the transformative power. It doesn't have the transformative power uh, that a clear mind has. And then what we see is wi- the seeing is the action, it's wisdom, and it becomes harder and harder. You don't even want to do stupid things. They're just too silly and stupid and destructive. You almost can't do them anymore. But on the way, it's not so easy. I, I can see that you, you I think you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the skillful and unskillful stuff. Let me put it in another context. I really hope we can all remember this because it's not limited to IMS. We bring, can bring it home. When we, about more than 20 years ago, about 20 plus years ago, we, st- we were about to start the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. It's right in a city. And it's right between Central Square, which is a kind of disaster area, and Harvard Square, which is very opulent and privileged. And uh, it's not an accident that we started the center there, because it was to... And uh, the first talk I ever gave there, I read from an ancient textbook, Where Not to Start a Meditation Center. And we did everything wrong. (laughs) Don't do it in a place where there's a lot of commercial activity shops all over the place, or where there's political activity, protesting, stop the war, stop the, you know, or a whole bunch. And I said, but that's why things have changed. And fortunately, IMS, the Forest Refuge, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and other places like that 
exists so that we can make use of, a, of coming to places like this, but then also come back and have a contemplative place right in the middle of the disaster. So we can go in and out, in and out, in and out. Okay. So we hadn't opened the scent yet, and I had uh, some friends arranged an audience with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And we, had, we got to speak for quite a long time. And you, you've seen him. He's, he's one, he, he, he just keeps saying, I'm just a human being. Please don't treat me as you know, someone who's from another planet. You know, and we keep treating him, we need to keep treating him like someone who's from another planet. Uh, he has a great sense of humor. He's very human. Uh, he listens. He uh, makes fun of himself. And with about five or ten minutes to go, he said, any questions that you might have? And I said, yeah. Uh, we're starting a center, and it's in Cambridge, and what I'm concerned about is how confusing it's likely to be because if you look at the bulletin boards in Cambridge, you have all these smiling faces representing different teachings from different parts of Asia, and they all have the most direct teaching, the most ancient teaching, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you look at them, and everyone seems so happy you know, the teachers are just smiling, well, except Theravadans. We're not allowed to smile because it shows attachment. <laughs> okay. But then when the, when the camera stops, some, like, some of them are very funny and very human, but not officially. That means you're holy. Okay. Um, and I said, and people who come to the center, they could have, they've already had Tibetan Buddhism Zen, what kind of Zen? Korean Zen, Japanese Zen, Vietnamese Zen, uh, different kinds of, of uh, Buddhism. They've had Hinduism and Raja Yoga, Jnana Yoga. Uh, you know, they have macrobiotic cooking, astrology, you know, sort of like, you know, the minds that come in are like the bulletin boards, you know. And saying, like, how can our place be coherent? You know, like I felt it was a sincere concern of mine. And he, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen him. He's, he's got, ah, uh, mm, mm. Mm, mm. Oh, no problem. Yeah, maybe for you, no problem. Okay. And he says, look, true, all the different schools are very different, all the Buddhist schools, one from the other. He said, but all, if it's truly a Buddhist school, they all agree on the Four Noble Truths. Okay. Keep the Four Noble Truths inside clearly. And when someone shows up, you'll see that one school emphasizes maybe the third one a lot at the expense of one and two. Uh, another one doesn't get into the fourth too much, but is big on one and one, two, and three. And he said, and it will help you see where they are, and it'll help you your teaching be coherent. Um, and I've done that, and there are other, you know, many of you know Michael and Orion. We've done that together, and it has helped us, I think, keep the place coherent. Now let's put that in this context. First noble truth is there is suffering. Uh, what's noble about that? Nothing. People suffer all the time. It destroys us. We are old before our time. We're exhausted. We become bitter. Uh, we are pessimistic. We uh, treat people from that place. There's nothing particularly noble about suffering. So then what's, why is it a noble truth? Because in the Buddha's teaching, the first noble truth is a doorway to liberation. It's important not to miss that point. Okay, so that's that first. And the second one is there's a cause. There's a disease. We have it. It's called suffering, unnecessary suffering. 
the cause of this disease is craving and attachment, the second noble truth. Those are both unskillful. That is, an unskillful cause, craving and attachment, produces an unskillful result. It's cause and effect. Want to call it karma? Please do. Okay. Uh, and then the third noble truth is there's an end to the suffering, cessation. And there's a path which helps, which brings cessation, whether it's cessation in a few moments or bigger cessation. Uh, the, the, so the third noble truth is a skillful outcome, the outcome of a skillful action. The skillful action is the practice. Do you see how it all kind of comes together? It's, it's very simple, logical, and to me quite intelligent. It's a guideline for living, uh, but it requires that we uh, bring that into intimate contact with our actual life as we live it and be willing and interested to learn from what is happening to us as we live, no matter what the activity is, whether you're here, suffering goes on here, you know that, and when we come home. So it's a frame of reference that's not limited to forests or caves or monasteries or IMS or Cambridge or the moon. It seems like all of us, it's a, very, it's a human universal approach. And so th- that's why, to me, it's so valuable and has lasted 2,600 years. It's not culture-bound it has not, because the suffering would be relative to your culture. What produces it for you? Okay, there's more to go. I promised some of you I'd talk about relationship. We'll do that. Uh, it, actually, it's better if we do it Thursday evening because then we'll be closer to going home. If we do it now, you're all gonna be, your body will be here, but your mind will be home already, and that's not too helpful. Uh, could we have a few moments of silence? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Okay, some... Do some meditation while walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.